0: Every day we pass by them. Some of us miss them because we're not really looking, not expecting anything out of the ordinary. And some of us have been waiting so long, praying for so long, that we've begun to lose hope. But then there are these moments when everything comes into focus, when beyond all explanation, the laws of nature and logic cease to matter because a greater power is at work. A loving God who sees us and hears us, stands ready to reveal his kindness and strength through miracles.
1: So we have been talking about miracles and we will get there in just a few moments. Before that, I'd like to answer two questions. Question number one actually came from last week's live stream. And the question was, are there people in the room? Like, I can, see, I can see hands and I can see heads. So what's the deal with that? And the truth is, yes, there are a few staff members here. Uh, it makes it easier to talk into the room. I'm not just talking to a camera, talking to other people. So no, we didn't start up church again and not tell you. There's just a couple of staff people here. That was the first question. Second question has been lighting up my email, my social media, my texts, and my phone conversations. And they're asking this question. In light of all this going on in the world right now, what am I supposed to do? Like, what am I supposed to do right now? And I've answered that question exactly the same way all week long, and I'm going to answer it again today from Romans chapter 12. I think Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, is a practical guide as to how to act right now. And I want to encourage you. We're going to move through this very quickly because we have a story to share with you today. But Romans chapter 12, verse 9, starts off with, Love must be sincere. And I'll tell you, what the world needs now, not to coin a phrase, but what the world needs now is love. Love in this time is when you sincerely think of others before yourself. Authentic love looks beyond selfishness and actually lives in the world of selflessness. Authentic love moves towards pain when it presents itself. It never pulls back. Authentic love remains calm for one reason, because perfect love casts out all fear. And sincere and perfect love, that's the language of Jesus. Then the Apostle Paul goes on and says, Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. It's okay for you right now to hate the virus. You you can despise the fear-mongering. You can harbor ill will towards the hoarding. But I want to remind you, point your anger towards the evil, not towards people. Because when, when people are acting poorly, they're not the enemy. They're just a victim of the enemy. So hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I mean, right now, cling to your family, cling to your friends, cling to worship, cling to your Bible, cling to speaking encouragement. Verse number 10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. He follows the same theme. Followers of Jesus, we replace selfishness with selflessness because we have a promise. God said, I will give you all that you need according to my riches, which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. I mean, this is an amazing opportunity to share the hope of Jesus. It's not a time to shrink back. It's a time to step up and be bold. It's not a good time to critique the church. It's a great time to be the church, which means we're supposed to be checking on our neighbors. We're supposed to be loving unconditionally. We're supposed to be proactive. You know, I noticed something this week. I was batting a thousand with a specific question. And the question was this, would it be okay if I prayed with you? Not a single person that I asked that question to said no. And that included a barista, a grocery clerk, a pharmacy tech. Every single one of them had this troubled look on their face. And when I asked them, hey, would it be okay if I prayed with you? Every single one of them said yes. Keep your spiritual passion. Bring Jesus into the conversations. Verse 12. I love these next three beautiful little points. It says, be joyful in hope. I can still be hopeful because God is in this with us. I mean, the church may have left the building, but Jesus has not left us. Amen? So be joyful in hope. And then it says, patient in affliction. Mom and dad, you're homeschooling now. You need to read those three words a lot over the next six or seven weeks. Be patient in affliction. We need to be patient as we deal with. With sickness, we need to be patient as we navigate lineups at the stores, the slowdown of the economy. We're going to need to be abundantly patient with each other. And then it says, be faithful in prayer. Right now I can tell you, prayer is the bedrock that I go to because it doesn't move. Worship is my lifeblood. Prayer is my hope. And I want to invite you again to join us on our day to pray this Friday. Because we're going to come together and we're going to take up the promise of God. He said, cast all of your anxiety on me because I care for you. It's time for st- some of us to step up. And I want to encourage you. Pray for the things that you are called to pray for. But pray bold prayers. Pray big prayers. Ask God to intervene. I mean, in addition to talking to God about a virus You need to talk to the virus about God because God is going to come against that. We really believe that and we need to pray together with passion. Verse 13, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. So that means we're not supposed to be thinking about me, mine, and ours. We're supposed to be thinking about our family, our neighbors, our community. Then the Bible says, practice hospitality. And some of you are like, time out, Grant, we're not allowed to do that right now. That's true, but you can still initiate contact with people. You can FaceTime, you can Google Chat, whatever it happens to be. We need to stay connected in biblical community right now because this is one thing I know. Working from home loses its shine after about three days and flannel pajamas become absolutely demonic in about four. So we need to stay connected and keep living life. If you're struggling with loneliness right now, don't wait for someone to call you, call someone. You might be the answer to someone else's prayer and need. And then in verse 14, it says this Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I ran into one of my internet trolls the other day. He's made my life a little miserable. Saw him at a store. We made eye contact. And when I didn't ignore him and asked him if I could actually pray for him, he said yes. I'm really glad I did not put him in the enemy category right now. I know some of you are thinking, well, that, that's all good. Appreciate the, appreciate the help. And I thought this was supposed to be about miracles. It is. Let me give you an interesting note. Jesus did all of this. All of these things that I just laid out. And he did them perfectly. And people still rejected him. Jesus did all of this Plus, he did miraculous signs and wonders, and people still found a way to reject him. I mean, there are moments in Scripture, Jesus heals a person. There's a lame man who's now walking. There's a blind man he's now seeing. And the response of people was to actually criticize the timing. Jesus, you did that on the wrong day of the week. I mean, think about that. Someone just got healed, and there were people who were like frowning, going, wrong day, wrong time. It's amazing to me that sometimes we see a miracle and we respond with rules and rejection. One of the questions that I promised we were going to tackle in this series is when it comes to a miracle, what do we do with the tough question, why did God say yes to them and no to me? Or why did God say yes to them and wait to me? That's an honest question. And my answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. The Bible tells us how to respond when someone else gets the miracle that I may be dreaming about. The Bible tells us how to position our heart. So when someone else gets a miracle, no matter how tender that spot may be in my own heart, that I can move towards them. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 12 lays it out. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. So celebrate with those who get a yes. And mourn with those who Who mourn, grieve alongside of those who are still waiting and still wanting. So, when someone else gets a miracle, celebrate with them. When someone else has to wait for their miracle, you wait with them. So, several months ago, I asked our church for miracle stories, and one of them showed up in my box. And when I read it, I was just transfixed. First of all, by the story, secondly, by the heart of the person who wrote it, and thirdly, by the by the craft that she laid out her story in. We, we I've asked a lot of questions. Should we just keep on doing what we're doing right now? Should we deviate? And I think people need miracle stories right now. So we're going to stay on track every week with this miracle series. And I'd like to share a miracle story with you right now by uh, a lady by the name of Kelly from our church. Kelly and her husband Dave walked through a very, very difficult time. and And as I read her story... I just, kept, I just kept thinking about how many people in the story actually were living in obedience to Romans chapter 12 as she walked through it. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna worship, and then Kelly's gonna share some of her story. Then we're gonna worship, then she's gonna share some more of her story. We're gonna walk alongside of Kelly and Dave as they go through their miracle story together. So just take a deep breath. We'll walk through this together. And I know by the time we get done that we will be able to rejoice with those who rejoice. If this story is tender for you, it's okay. Because we can also mourn with those who mourn. So let's worship. Let's listen. Let's give God our full attention right now. As we hear about a miracle, let's do that together. Andy, would you lead us, please?
2: in our midst I'm worshiping
0: five weeks pregnant and there was blood. Shock numbed my emotions and irrational thoughts flooded my mind. Did that glass of wine poison my baby? I must have listeria from that ham sandwich. My bath was too hot. Is this my fault? The doctor said things like blighted ovum, probable miscarriage and at least we know your system works. I couldn't process his words. I could only wonder why he wasn't fixing me my husband and i waited an hour to see the ultrasound technician holding hands and lost in the space between hope and grief when my name was called i tentatively perched on the ultrasound table i flinched when cold gel plopped on my unripe belly the tech parted her lips to speak and i encased my emotions in steel determined to take the news like the stoic New Englander I was reared to be. I see two healthy heartbeats here. I measured 146 and 147 beats per minute. Surprised tears leaked from my eyes, rusting and dissolving my reinforced emotions. I rubbed my belly, still not sure I had heard correctly. The tech pointed at the two tiny shapes on the monitor, and the truth collided with my assumption that we had lost our baby. I reclined on the exam chair and bawled into my hands. My husband gently pried my hands from my face and turned me against his chest. I soaked him in tears and snot and ultrasound gel. I wasn't having a miscarriage. I was still pregnant, two heartbeats. We were having twins. Over my sobs, the tech said it was too early to know if the babies had their own amniotic sacs or if they shared a placenta. She recommended we come back at 14 weeks. She didn't provide details and I was in no condition to ask questions. My husband led me through the waiting room. My burst of emotion was slowing down, but I was red-eyed and wet. People were staring at me. I made eye contact with one woman who was obviously very pregnant, and she offered me a look of sympathy. She thought I was grieving. I stopped and whispered, we're having twins, two heartbeats. Her eyes went wide and she said, congratulations, no wonder you're crying. Twins sound terrifying, but it's going to be amazing. I smiled, yes, amazing is right. I spent the time leading up to the next ultrasound, alternating between elation and worry. I wanted to know why the number of amniotic sacs and placentas was important. I turned to the internet, which only inflamed me. Because identical twins share a placenta, and sometimes sacs, they carry a higher burden of potential problems than fraternal twins. I convinced myself The twins were conjoined, or had some unnameable disease. I was already in love with the babies. Would my husband and I get to meet them?
2: You are here, moving in our midst. I worship. Oh shit.
0: was prepared for the follow-up appointment armed with internet knowledge when the obstetrician walked into the room, I barely let her say hello before I hurled questions at her. Are the babies identical? What are the chances that the babies are conjoined? Do they have adequate kidney function? What about genetic anomalies? She put up her hand looked me straight in the eyes and told me to stay away from Google and let her do the diagnostic work. She said the babies are most likely identical with a single placenta and their own sacs. Two sacs meant a lower risk, and I allowed myself some relief. And one other surprise, girls. We already had a son, and with the addition of two girls, our family would be complete. It was the last time for me to grow a new person, the last time to feel little feet kick and little bodies hiccup. I promised the doctor I would stay away from the internet and return for a 20-week anatomical ultrasound. At the 20-week scan, the babies were structurally normal. They still had all their girly parts and they had strong heartbeats, except one small thing. Baby B's sac had borderline low amniotic fluid. The physician thought it was just normal variation, but she wanted to check me again in the following week. At our next visit, baby B's fluid level had decreased and baby A's level had risen. The doctor was concerned and suspected twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, TTTS. She explained TTTS is a disease of the placenta where the blood vessels don't grow normally. Babies affected by unequal blood flow can have heart disease, anemia, and problems with amniotic fluid. I mean, of course, I knew this information from my internet search, but she was nonchalant and factual about her explanation. She even mentioned that our girl's present condition didn't meet the diagnostic criteria for TTTS. Still, she wanted to play it safe and get a second opinion from the experts. Her confidence kept my anxiety at bay during the conversation, but my thoughts darkened as soon as we stepped out of her office. I had promised I would not search the internet for answers, but after a few sleepless nights, I couldn't resist. At one o'clock in the morning, I settled in front of my computer with a hot cup of tea and my mother's old quilt around my shoulders. I was searching for stories of happy outcomes and pictures of twins who had conquered the diagnosis. I craved every detail about TTTS because I couldn't handle the vulnerability of being uninformed. The doctor's casual explanation wasn't enough to give me control. If I could just touch that worst case scenario and roll it around in my fingers and manipulate it until familiarity bloomed, mold it into something that I could understand, then the outcome would be okay anything less than the worst would be bearable because I was already intimate with the extreme possibilities. I wish that doctor had been more forthcoming about the nature of TTTS. I wish I had learned about the seriousness of the syndrome from a real-life person who handled my frantic questions with grace and empathy. Instead, The hours spent in front of my screen scared me into days of visceral agony. My heart beat too fast. Cold sweat covered my body at night and my insides were twisted in knots. There were not many pictures of happy survivors on the internet. I didn't find sets of babies smiling for a camera. I found stories of loss And tragedy. What I learned was terrifying. TTTS is rare and it only occurs in identical twin gestations. One baby, called the recipient, receives too much blood from the placenta. The other baby, called the donor, doesn't receive enough. This causes heart failure for the recipient and problems growing for the donor. This disease is often fatal for at least one baby and frequently both. Our doctor only suspected TTTS. Our babies, they didn't even fit their criteria because they were the same size. Part of me was in denial and I didn't see the need for an expert opinion. I balked at the appointment when we learned that the experts were an 11 hour drive from us. 11 hours, there was no way No way we could travel that far. We were alone and isolated because we had taken jobs 1,600 miles away from our families. We had no local support. What about our son? We had no family or friends to watch him uh, while we traveled across the country. What about our work obligations? What were we supposed to do? We almost decided not to go, until my parents stepped in. They volunteered to drive over a thousand miles and pay for a hotel suite. They would care for our son so we could make sure our girls were safe. My parents did not hesitate to sacrifice for us, and I felt a little guilty for even thinking about waiting. Within a week, we scheduled a day-long itinerary of TTTS testing. We booked a hotel suite, we canceled our work obligations, and we packed our three-year-old son into our minivan. The TTTS diagnostic was in a large hospital and each test was in a different wing. I was almost 23 weeks pregnant, but I looked like I was about to pop. The extra amniotic fluid around baby A stretched my skin to the point of pain and I had difficulty walking. I was forced to sit in a wheelchair and allow my husband to shuttle me around. We were bewildered by the maze of hallways and elevators and poorly marked diagnostic centers. We arrived late for almost every appointment, which left no time for eating or using the bathroom. I had to inhale a protein bar while in an elevator that smelled of antiseptic and sweat. I caught a glimpse of my reflection in the elevator's mirrored walls and was startled to see dark, sunken eyes peering out of a pale face. Before the final appointment, I could barely keep my eyes open and I sat in the waiting room curled over my belly, face in my hands. The medical professionals were kind and they were efficient, but Enduring a fetal echocardiogram, two MRIs, blood work, and a detailed ultrasound left me shaky and overwhelmed. The day ended with a meeting. Three doctors, a social worker, and a nurse. My husband wheeled me into a generic boardroom with large monitors bolted to the wall. The experts were arranged in a row behind a large conference table, all lined up on one side like judges about to execute a verdict. My husband and I sat there holding hands, small and intimidated by the serious faces staring us down. This was the first moment I understood something was seriously wrong. I had been protecting myself all day, avoiding eye contact with the diagnostic technicians because I was afraid that I would see pity or empathy. I was scared. Their eyes would reveal hints of devastation captured by the imaging tests. I couldn't play that game with the panel seated across from me. I actively scanned their faces for reassurance, for hope, for relief. I only saw slabs of stone, flat, sterile faces, preparing to crush my family with unwelcome news. I instantly knew we had TTTS.
2: You are here, touching every heart, and worship I worship you you are here healing every heart, I worship you I worship you you are here turning lights around I worship you I worship you. You are here, mending every heart. I worship.
0: physician put pictures from the MRI and the echocardiogram on a giant projector screen. Each girl weighed slightly more than a pound and looked smaller than my hand. We could see their petite noses and fingers perfectly formed. Their hearts were so tiny, maybe the size of a grape. The right side of our recipient's heart wasn't working. The overabundance of blood was too much and her miniature heart couldn't keep up. The left side of her heart was struggling to feed her body. She was faltering, and the inconsistent blood flow caused a mild stroke near the ventricles in her brain. She also had fluid accumulating under the skin, covering her head. She was in the final stages of TTTS. The doctor told us her heart function was among the worst they had seen at their facility and they didn't expect her to make it beyond a few days. Our donor was in mild heart failure and was completely shrink-wrapped in her amniotic sac. They thought she had a good chance of survival if we acted quickly with emergency surgery. How could it have progressed so fast? I shut down and turned inward unable to process more words falling from the stone faces. The words became background noise, a minor accompaniment to the grim orchestra blasting inside of my head. I had spent hours educating myself and preparing for the worst, but I had never believed that the worst could happen to me. Were these people telling me that one of my babies was dying? Are they implying that one baby will die inside of my womb and one baby will live? Cuddled next to the body of her twin sister until she's born, unthinkable. I pushed that image out of my head, but once imagined I couldn't entirely escape it. I refocused on the meeting in a desperate attempt to erase my imagination. I heard the surgeon say, We need to separate the fates of the babies. The blood supply of the donor cannot be connected to the blood supply of the recipient. We had a wrap-up meeting to sign paperwork uh, with one of the physicians. He had said something during the meeting that made me wonder if he was a Christian. And so when I was alone with him, I asked him if he was. He said yes. And I asked him if he would pray for us. He said that he and the nurses had started praying as soon as they saw the results from the fetal echocardiogram and knew that baby A was in serious trouble. Back at the hotel, I lay on a bed that was not mine, and I cried into a pillow that I didn't recognize. I was lost. The bed shifted, and I could smell the familiar scent of my mother next to me. I felt her warm hand caress my forehead, and her touch was home. Without words, she gave me permission to let go. I stared into space with unfocused eyes, and I told her what I remembered, and I cried some more. There was no stoic pretense surrounding my tears, no steel, nothing to dissolve or break down. These were pure, salty, liquid drops of grief and terror, making tracks down my face. I was a child again, me, who had two babies in my belly, became a child who needed her mom. I needed her comfort, her solace, her strength, and her tenderness. Her eyes dropped tears into my hair and we just existed in a cloud of emotion. She promised it would be okay and I believed her because the words of a mother are powerful. No mother wants to see her daughter shed desperate tears, but my mom put her own emotions aside, absorbed my tears, and in that moment existed just for me. Later, my husband and I decided we couldn't continue calling our twins Baby A and Baby B, or even worse, recipient and donor they needed names, in case they went straight into the arms of God and not into our arms. That night, baby A officially became Emerson Linda and baby B became Alice and Catherine. We used their names to pray. We huddled together, holding each other up as we put those names into God's hands. We prayed for life. We prayed for strength, and we prayed for purpose. We prayed to hear the heartbeats of our babies. I have never heard more tender words than the heartbreaking prayer that flowed from my husband on that night. He told God that we desperately wanted both babies and would be privileged and blessed to love two babies in whatever form they came. Heart disease, seizure disorders, developmentally delayed, micropremies. We were chosen for these specific girls. We wanted to accept our gift. The moment my husband bared his heart was the moment I knew I wasn't alone in my desperation. My mother nurtured me, and my husband knew me. The things I yearned for were so so perfectly articulated in his prayer, in the stillness of God, I knew my purpose. My purpose was to be a mom no matter what happened after the surgery, to nurture my girls like my mother nurtured me, to be one with my husband and love our children. I was meant to function within a family, even if that meant enduring pain. My husband and I connected through a shared prayer and our connection offered clarity and renewal. God didn't take away the suffering, but allowed us to feel joy in the simplest of offerings, his love and his control. We were not happy, God's joy didn't wipe away pain or even make me smile, but it did let me rest. We felt acceptance, and we felt the prayers of our friends and our family and our church. There were hundreds of people praying for us that night. We didn't even know most of the people who were praying. There's no way in the middle of this scary and dismal time of life, that I could personally muster any acceptance. I was numb, I was broken, and I was in pain, and I was tired in body and in spirit. My babies were in trouble and one was dying inside of me. And I had to rely on new doctors in a strange city to put a laser inside of me inside of the sack that was protecting my babies and hope that that would reverse the effects of TTTS. The prayers of others lifted up my tired spirit and delivered it to God, and he gave me peace. Why? Because he was in control of the fates of my babies, not the surgeons. He knew every part of them and had already planned their path,
2: even when I don't see it you're working, even when I don't feel it you're working, you never stop, you never stop working, you never stop, you never stop working, even when I don't see it you're working, even when Never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keep. Light in the darkness, oh my God. Is who you are, we make a miracle work, promise keep, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are.
0: The surgery wasn't physically demanding. It only required light sedation and a spinal block. The surgeons used a small endoscopic laser to cut 10 shared blood vessels in my placenta. They also removed three liters, three liters, of amniotic fluid. I was awake during the procedure and I developed a mantra. Please God, keep their hearts beating. I can see the ultrasound monitor. They are alive. Please, 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 hearts beat. I gripped the words of my mother and the prayers of my husband while I waited an eternity for the surgery to end. I was so focused on the rhythm of the words that I lost track of the heartbeats. Something was wrong. The room was too silent. The monitors were not tracking the girls' hearts and I couldn't hear them. Panic rose in my throat and I clutched the nurse she recognized my distress and said, the surgery's over, you're all done. The monitors aren't hooked up to you. I begged her to put the monitor back on one more time. I just needed to know. I needed to break the silence. The nurse's eyes glimmered with empathy and she put the ultrasound transducer back on my belly. She stilled and said, don't worry, mama. I hear two healthy heartbeats. Their hearts never stopped beating. Not during the laser procedure, not during the removal of the amniotic fluid, not during the days that followed the surgery. Every single time we checked, we heard two distinct heartbeats. Two. I was sent home on bed rest and for 12 more weeks, I happily endured cold gel plopped on my ripening belly and anticipated the tech's lips parting to tell me that she heard two healthy heartbeats. There was no steel, no stoicism, only celebration. Our four pound miracles were born five weeks prematurely and spent 16 days in the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU. I wish I could say I instantly bonded with the girls, but I can't. Because of the NICU time, I couldn't cuddle them or care for them nearly enough. I wish I could say that their homecoming was full of joy and wonder, but I can't. The joy was tempered by hard adjustments and stress. I didn't recover well from the C-section, and I was slow and still in pain. I underestimated the sheer neediness, not only of my delicate girls, but also of my son. But what I can say is this, even though I was busy, just trying to survive, God never left me, I was never alone, even in my darkest, most vulnerable moments. It didn't matter to him, that I was irritable or that I smelled like sour milk or that I felt out of control or overwhelmed. He reminded me over and over through my family, through my community and through worship that I am his child and well-loved. When the babies were about three months old, I was rocking them to sleep. The nursery was softly lit by the glow of an angel nightlight. The girls were tucked into my arms, football style, their bodies supported by a soft pillow in my lap. Each of my hands cradled a small head, wispy hair tickling my fingers. We had just finished nursing, and they were sleepy and content. I watched one girl yawn, her eyes squeezed tight, her mouth tiny perfect o she lifted her arm in the air her fingers balled into a fist and then opened them out one by one she brought her arm back down and caught her sister's hand they held each other and I held them we sat like that for a long time wrapped up in each other I was so tender inside my chest aching in the sweetest way. My body finally relaxed and soaking them in. It was my purpose. I couldn't put them down. I wasn't holding the babies or the girls. I was holding my daughters. It was our moment. We exhaled as one. We made it. They made it. We learned to measure hope in heartbeats.
2: Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. I don't see it you working. Even when I don't feel it you working. You never stop, you never stop working, you never stop, We never stop. Come on, sing this with me. Even when I yeah, even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working, you never stop, we it. even when I don't see it, you work. Stop.
1: in kelly's mom kelly's husband kelly's doctor kelly's community kelly's church and what were they all doing they were being joyful in hope patient in affliction faithful in prayer that's what they did in church that's what our community needs from us this week they need us to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You have no idea whether or not you're being a part of someone else's miracle or not, but those are the marching orders for the church of Jesus this week. Why? Why would we do that? It's so we can't mourn with those who mourn. I know for some of you, that story may have been very difficult and very tender, but I want to challenge you right now. Open your heart and know that you're not alone. If you're mourning today, we're mourning with you. But we also need to celebrate. We need to celebrate the miracle. Can I show you a picture of the miracle? Can I see a picture of the babies up on the screen? Yeah, there they are right there. Can we can we celebrate and thank God for everything that he did for Kelly and Dave and their story today? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for miracles today. Thank you. Thank you. So church, there we have it. That's the work for this week. And I hope that you're fully entering with us.